On the 21st of December 1619, a group of men arrived at St. Vitus Cathedral, the principal cathedral of the Czech lands, situated atop the castle hill in Prague. They set to work dismantling the large crucifix opposite the high altar, then took apart the tomb of St. John Nepomuk, and then they started on the high altar, and they also burned the ceremonial chairs, including the cathedral, the bishop's throne. On the next day, on the 22nd of December, they set to work on the relics. They trampled and burned the heads and bones of saints. They also turned the stone altars to rubble and destroyed an altar painting by Lucas Karanach. On that day, the Calvinist Abraham Skultatus delivered a sermon based on the second commandment. Here it is in um, its printed version. It was printed in Czech and German um, and spread throughout Europe. And, uh, helpfully for us, um, also in English in 1620. A short information but agreeable unto scripture of idol images, faithfully translated according to the High Dutch copy. To address uh, perhaps the shock of what devotees encountered on arrival to the cathedral, it began with the entrance. I doubt not but that there are many who will think it strange, which either now do see and behold, or shortly shall hear and understand, that the altar and images are removed and put out of this church, for many men will perhaps thus think and say with themselves that God might even as well have been served and honoured through these images, that also they were the common people's books and Bible, and that the altar and images did much adorn and beautify the church, which now, being despoiled of these ornaments, seems to be bare and naked like a wilderness. Now, therefore, the better to meet with and satisfy such conceited thoughts, I will for this time lay aside and pretermit the text of the gospel appointed for this day, and briefly, yet plainly and evidently declare unto you what almighty God's will and pleasure is concerning such images and altars, which will and pleasure of God, when it shall be brought forth and made manifest out of the holy scripture, as clear as the daylight and bright sunshine, then shall not any be justly offended at the cleansing and purging of this church from images. But all godly-minded people that do see it or shall hear of it will spiritually much rejoice thereat and be heartily thankful for the same, first unto the Most High God and next unto his royal majesty. That our father was said, and then Scultatus proceeded to explain the second commandment. Thus spake the strong and jealous God out of the fire unto the people of Israel. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Of all the commandments, the second commandment is the most severe, explicitly promising hellfire for generations to those that disobey him. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me 
and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. In spite of this divine order, images have been used throughout Christian history. Since the earliest known house church in Dura Europos from around 235 AD in modern-day Syria, the justification for the use of images in Christian practice was first clearly presented by Pope Gregory I in the early 7th century. He wrote, It is one thing to worship a picture and another to learn from the story of a picture what is to be worshipped. For what writing conveys to those who can read, a picture shows to the ignorant. And for that very reason, a picture is like a lesson for the people. Gregory secured the importance of art to Christianity in the medieval period, but images were continually contested as radical threat and radical opportunity at times violently. In the 16th and 17th centuries, Protestants returned to the Second Commandment in varying ways, but all disputing the need for statues and images in the way that they had been used by Catholics. Lutherans largely held that images and icons were adiaphora, or indifferent objects, and therefore their continued existence held no threat to devotees. Abraham Scultatus, however, our Calvinist preacher and leader of the iconoclasm in Prague, was particularly fervent in his own interpretation, believing that idols and images must be violently destroyed and, of course, in a roundabout way, confirming their power. What's interesting is that Scultatus was particularly alert to sensory engagement with church ritual. He observed, we poor humans live in the five senses. Jacob Baum has drawn attention to how Scultetus discussed the mundane act of chewing during communion. He wrote, whoever mashes the bread with teeth and tongues also mashes the body of Christ with teeth and tongues. If Christ had used ordinary bread, then clearly people were supposed to chew their Eucharist in that way. And so the chewing, tearing and mashing of bread with the tongue and teeth was supposed to stir up feelings of devotion and identification with the unspeakable agony and martyrdom of Christ's body, the flagellation, crowning and the nailing of his hands and feet, all of which so miserably tore his holy body. And of course, this has resonance with uh, Catholic visual culture at the time, Uh, especially depicted here in Italian wax reliefs used for personal devotion which um, allow the devotee to think about the torture of bodies. Through Scultetus' sermon we can see that the iconoclasm in Prague was linked with a heightened sensory awareness. It's packed with this imagery the clarity of the daylight, the brightness of sunshine, and that those seeing these actions or hearing of them will have great joy and be heartily thankful. Undertaken at Christmas time, such a provocative act of destruction took on even greater poignancy. We just need to imagine the performance of the sermon alongside the semi-destroyed interior of the cathedral. And you can see the kind of brutality of the force 
that was used in this uh, wooden panel depiction um, in breaking the stone altars on the left, um, just on this corner here. Alongside these theological arguments about the place of images in devotion that changed so dramatically in the Reformation is another important aspect regarding how people engaged with their surroundings. Beyond the distinctive art historical styles that we attribute, Renaissance, Baroque, Romantic, and so on, in every period there's a distinctive character to the relationship between humans and their material surroundings what we might call materiality, a culturally and historically constructed notion about how we live with and think about the world around us. Today, we don't think too much about this, perhaps. We feel we know basically how our senses work from biology and how nature works through science. But this certainty wasn't always the case, and it was a topic that was explored examined and philosophised about throughout the ages. In the history of medieval religious art, there is the notion of overt materiality, whereby statues and images called attention to themselves as material stuff, drawing on the senses to interpret these objects. On the one hand, this technique drew attention to the fact that objects were merely pieces of wood and paint and other raw materials, and was a conscious attempt to subvert impulses of idolatry. On the other hand, Genesis taught that the entire universe is God's creation and manifestation, and therefore all of creation could convey and reveal God. So matter mattered and had meaning of its own and a spiritual dimension. This was a world where the environment exuded the miracle of God's creation, not a world where access to the divine was limited to narrowly defined religious objects or sacred spaces. This understanding of late medieval attitudes to materiality changes our view of how late medieval people saw the world they lived in, but it also draws attention to the creative possibilities of such a world. Believing the divine to be present in matter allowed craftsmen to heighten potency and meaning in items. For example, Caroline Walker-Bynum has drawn our attention to how the clear rock crystal on a reliquary was not only a practical window, but it encased the bone within in the non-decayable quintessence of heaven. Similarly, Gemstones on reliquaries reference the divine in creation and in their powerful virtues, often having quite specific meanings. Bynum finds that religious objects were thought actually to be vibrantly active. They were understood as the locus of divine agency and inspired action in viewers such as touching and kissing, a very specific bodily devotional engagement with matter. The Reformation ushered in a reinvigorated questioning of the theology around images. And it was also connected with a changing art historical move to draw attention not to materiality, but to artistic skill and the appreciation of artists' ability to manipulate matter, paint, stones and wood. 
Bynum, for example, concludes that late medieval religious objects and images were made to manifest the significance of the divine rather than naturally look like biblical characters. And that's what she proposes began to happen in the Renaissance. And here we can see two famous examples um, of the respective genres. But against these dominant narratives of change, what is interesting is that the major so-called Protestant religion in Bohemia in the early 17th century, Eutychism, at this time in fact had what has been termed a consciously anachronistic visual culture. Eutychists developed a distinctive artistic expression with iconography that favoured the Eutychist martyred saints, Jan Hus and Master Jerome of Prague, and also emphasis on the chalice. Through the 16th century, it developed a rich artistic tradition in the illustration of graduals, decoration of church altars and epitaphs. The Eutychist aesthetic often favoured simple polychromed wooden statues that clung on to a medieval style. Unfortunately, very little survives of this Eutychist art owing to Catholic iconoclasm of these items in the later 17th century. For example, um, on, the left, uh, on the right of the uh, screen, you can see the gable of Teen Church in Prague, which acted as the main Eutychist church. And there was a statue of the Hussite King George of Podjebrady and a massive gilded chalice on the gable, a symbol of the Hussite movement. Uh, but in 1626, during recatholicization, the statue and the chalice were replaced with the Mary Immaculata, a symbol of militant Habsburg Catholicism. The chalice was melted down and a halo was made for the Madonna. And uh, a few years ago, they replaced uh, the chalice, but keeping Mary there as well, and you can just see it, uh, um, this very uh, large golden blob there in the middle. So Prague was a mixture of competing visual traditions, ideologies, and styles in the early 17th century. How did the stark iconoclasm of Christmas 1619 come about in the centre of Europe, in the place where depicting saints continued to be favoured and late medieval styles were still in vogue. Typically, the event was embroiled in contemporary political religious turmoil. Most immediately, it took place because the incoming king of Bohemia, who had just been elected the Protestant, uh, by the Protestant Bohemian Estates and crowned in Prague on the 4th of November 1619 was King Frederick V of the Palatinate. A renowned Calvinist with his seat at Heidelberg, a centre of Protestant theology. His wife was also Protestant, being Elizabeth Stuart, the daughter of James I of England. The circumstances around Frederick's reign in Bohemia were highly contested. For almost 100 years, Bohemia had become part of the hereditary lands of the Habsburgs, the Catholic Holy Roman Emperors, since 1526. The seat of this heart of Catholic Europe had been located in Prague under Rudolf II from 1576 to 1612. And this uh, map by Heinrich Bunting, who is actually a Lutheran, um, shows just how um, central Bohemia was seen and how, how very much at the heart of Europe 
um, it was depicted in the imagination. Yet, after Rudolf's death, his brother Matthias and cousin Ferdinand II's reigns were less popular. They eroded the toleration of Protestant faiths that Rudolf had established and pledged a brutal program of re-Catholicization. So, in protest at this attack on the self-determination of the Protestant Bohemian estates, on the 23rd of May 1618, three Catholics from the Habsburg administration, Wilhelm Slavata, Jaroslav Martinitz, and Philip Fabricius, were thrown out of a window of the castle, sparking the Thirty Years' War. And this is a fantastic ex voto made a few years later um, uh, of Our Lady saving Wilhelm Slavata. It is the Catholic version of what happened to these, uh, these uh, administrators who survived that they were, they were saved by squirts of holy breast milk from the Virgin Mary. Whereas, of course, the Protestants had a different story, which was that they fell into a dung heap below. So following this uh, dramatic event, the estates plotted to overthrow the Habsburg hold on the land by electing king for hire, Protestant Frederick, in 1619. And he arrived at the end of October bringing with him his court preacher and advisor, uh, Abraham Scultatus. But the iconoclastic event in the cathedral was a shock. Many locals refused to take part. This was a wholly different Protestantism than the Bohemian estates were used to. Bohemian Protestantism had grown out of a parallel Reformation spirit to the Germanic one that we tend to be familiar with. The religious character of Bohemian lands had its own unique history. Medieval Bohemia was heavily invested with religious material culture of a distinctive character. Charles IV, Holy Roman Emperor and King of Bohemia in the 14th century, played a significant role in constructing this specific Bohemian Christian culture. He commissioned the magnificent inlaid stone walls made of blood-red jasper, green chrysoprase, and deep purple amethyst of the St. Wenceslas Chapel in the St. Vitus Cathedral, completed in 1373. These acted as an architectural reliquary reflecting the heavenly Jerusalem as described in Revelation. The stones were mined and transported from nearby Tsiboshov in the Ore Mountains to the north of Prague, also known as the Erzgebirge or Krushnehori. Charles IV was also a devoted relic collector. He obtained a piece of shoulder bone of St. Wenceslas in 1354 and subsequently had a lavish reliquary in the shape of an arm and hand made for it and many other reliquaries um, in a similar way. Furthermore, Bohemia was known for its claim since the mid-14th century to own the Peplum Cruentatum relic. This was a piece from the Virgin Mary's garments which she had worn as she stood under Christ on the cross and showed drops of his blood. It conflicted directly with the accepted idea that Christ had risen to heaven whole and complete. This super relic permeated deep into the Bohemian culture. And this is... Um, the reliquary painting uh, that uh, it was thought to have been kept in. 
through Prague's university, also founded by Charles IV, known now as Charles University, a strong tradition of theology was established. From 1398 to 1412, Jan Hus, the famous theologian with reformist ideas and deep criticism of Rome, preached in Prague and established a committed following. In 1409, Hus was excommunicated for heresy. His ideas were compared to Wycliffe's and he was condemned for his criticism of the clergy and indulgences. After Huss's death at the stake in Constance in 1415, supporters picked up his cause. Whilst Huss had commented that it is a great shame to destroy a valuable picture as a valuable book, an early leader of the movement, Jan Zielewski, called followers to destroy great idols. And then one of the defining characteristics of Hussites came to be their iconoclasm in the 15th century. In 1421, Zielewski led a mob to attack the precious religious objects in St. Vita's Cathedral. And the Hussites are known for their particular brutality and warfare tactics, um, as has been popularised in this Hollywood film, Medieval, uh, released this year. Um, and of course, in, in uh, the Czech Republic, it has the real title, which is Jan Zizka, who is the one-eyed leader of the um, Hussite army. So, whilst it appears that the narrative of Bohemia is the one of investment in religious material and then violent iconoclasm, in reality, Hussite iconoclasm did not obliterate its religious religious landscape in the late medieval period. In 1619, St. Vita's Cathedral still held many precious relics and original decorations from the era of Charles IV, added to by subsequent kings of Bohemia. So we have some things that still survive. Furthermore, during the 15th and 16th century, Hussites splintered into a less radical majority, the Eutychrists, and a more radical sect, the United Brethren, also known in the literature as Bohemian Brethren, or Unitas Fratrum, or later the Moravian Brethren. The more radical United Brethren developed a more visually austere approach throughout the 16th century, aligning themselves with the, Catholic, the Calvinist position from around the 1570s onwards. And as mentioned, the Eutychrists clung onto a late medieval form of art. During the 16th century, Eutychrism was established as the most popular religion in Bohemia, but constantly struggled for recognition from Rome and from the Habsburg rulers. Its theological standpoint has been identified by Zdeněk David as a via media between Catholic and Protestant, specifically Lutheran faiths. Observers such as the English traveller Fiennes Morrison and the French diplomat Pierre Bergeron in 1600 noted that Eutychrists used the same Latin liturgy and investiture of the altar as in the Roman Catholic faith, although the epistle and gospel were sung in Czech and communion was given in both kinds. In terms of percentages, it's estimated that the Bohemian population in 1620 as a whole consisted of a majority of Eutychrists and Lutherans, 10 to 15% the Catholics, and 5 to 10% United Brethren. And if we return to one of those Catholics thrown out of the window, Wilhelm Slavata, 
He observed each man thought and believed whatever suited him best, so that those who were known in the Bohemian kingdom as Eutychrist could really have been called by any name you please. It's quite a flippant comment, but one um, that perhaps is also revealing about everyday beliefs. And it ties into the response to iconoclasm in St. Vitus from the Prague uh, residents. As the altars were turned to rubble and images destroyed, there was widespread disapproval of the cleansing of St. Vitus. Eutychist took to defending some of the cathedral's Catholic artifacts which survive today. In particular, it was reported that they helped Catholics to preserve the St. Wenceslas Chapel with its inlaid gem uh, walls and secured the tomb, gold reliquary, and uh, other artifacts. The intensity of this comprehensive iconoclasm had taken Prague's burghers by surprise. They were largely united in condemnation of it. They were not ready for full destruction, and this was a result of the clash of perspectives from West and Centre-East with its different Reformed tradition. Glimpses into everyday beliefs through inventories of domestic possessions are helpful for understanding a fuller picture of devotion in this period to go alongside these larger religious events such as the iconoclasm. The home was a crucial agent at the heart of curating individual religious worlds, providing space for a kaleidoscope of spiritual possibilities. People at home used very mixed approaches to devotion that indicate burghers were not yet strongly confessionalized. They didn't identify and practice strictly within one confession, Lutheran, Calvinist, or Catholic. But rather, they accessed a cosmos of options to interact with God's world around them. And luckily, we have lots of these lists of objects uh, from Prague burghers in the 17th century. Lists of possessions made on the death of individuals in Prague have revealed a fascinating picture of beliefs in the city at this time. One interesting example that's richly detailed is a burger infantry that contained a range of objects from natural matter to devotional tools to cope with daily life. Dorota Arampakova's inventory was made on her death in the old town in 1600 and witnessed by her son and daughter. Her property was large and well furnished. First, we might note in the living room there was a window with Saint Jacob depicted on it. Long benches, a chair, an old carpet on the wall for warmth. In a cupboard in the corner were stored papers, eight old knives, a fork, an empty wash basin. Next to this room was another chamber with an iron chest full of books in German, including formulage in folio, probably an instruction manual for a skill like drawing or practicing medicine, travels from Vienna to Bohemia, and a copy of a book entitled De Occultus Natura by Albertus Magnus in Quarto. Next to these was a Lutheran prayer book by Jan Habermann, written in Czech and kept in a small yellow silk bag. Noted down next was a list of tin cookingware, sumptuous clothing, including velvets, 
and silver items and chests of linen. Then, in a yellow chest, were items of jewellery, including nine pieces of chalcedony, a so-called Agnes Day in silver setting, a small bottle with carnelian, a hand-in-hand ring, a cross with more, uh, a pearl at the end and a silver gilt pomander, and 52 red beads. A further chest contained six more pieces of a chalcedony and a small box with silk, a paternoster and a knife. This intriguing spectrum of possessions was already boxed up and prepared for inventorying. The only devotional book owned here was the Lutheran prayer book, preciously kept in a sensuous, bright, soft bag. Prayer with this text would have involved a joyous hit of yellow colour, a moment of devotion framed by the tactile experience of carefully opening the book, handling it and putting it away again in its smooth cover. Yet, the Agnes Day, the Paternoster and the string of 52 red beads, likely a set of Paternoster prayer beads made from imitation coral, suggests that Catholic devotional practices were also part of Dorota's daily life. Intermingled with these objects is evidence of engagement with natural philosophy. The volume of De Occultis Natura indicates learned engagement with nature. In this context, the striking quantity of chalcedony, 15 pieces in total in the inventory, appears significant. According to a contemporary lapidary written in Prague by Anselmus Bertias de Bote, chalcedony was known to secure victory and as an aid to cheerfulness to drive away evil spirits, melancholy and sadness. The other objects in Dorota's possession may provide clues to her grief and uh, sadness as being associated with pregnancy and miscarriage. The bottle of carnelian suggests that Dorota may have owned a powdered version of this red mineral intended to be ingested. Taken in powdered form, it was thought to prevent miscarriage. One might also in this light decode the ownership of the devotional tools Agnes Day were often used in pregnancy to safeguard the unborn, and the 52 red beads were perhaps intended to invoke the power of coral, another substance associated with protecting a woman in labour. The ownership of copious amounts of chalcedony that were thought to prompt cheerfulness may have been an attempt to deal with an emotional impact of the loss of children through miscarriage. Dorota's possessions indicate a range of strategies, Catholic, Protestant and medical, for coping with the exigencies of daily life, with little division between devotional tools and a natural matter. We might call this medical pluralism, but that does not quite express the divine nature of the power that she hoped to draw upon. It was God's word and his world which she hoped to work through, its matter and the cosmos. So having been on a journey from the 1619 iconoclasm to a window into everyday beliefs through Dorota's inventory to kind of create a 360 degree view of belief at this time, I want to move to a conclusion in three parts. 
So first, how do we interpret the religious situation in Bohemia in the early 17th century? In an analysis of 15th century uh, Christianity, John van Engen has suggested that multiple options of belief were held together within a universal system of Christianity. Van Engen proposed that this flexible religious culture continued to shape individual belief in the 16th century because many of those who had grown up in a late medieval culture still lived by it. And Erasmus is perhaps the best-known example of someone who was thought to have resisted the choice between Catholicism and Protestantism at the end of his life, charged with lacking courage or decisiveness. But in Van Engen's model, however, Erasmus was, ha- was someone who clung to the 15th century world in which he had grown up, a world of multiple and even contradictory options of religion and humanism, a moralising philosophy of Christ and witty humanist circles. This stood against the ideals of reformers, What these reformers found no longer sustainable or indeed desirable was the 15th century church's carnival of religious options, multiple, connecting, competing, contested, coexistent, negotiated, overlapping, local, personally appropriated. In the broadest of senses, the late medieval options were closed down and split off into siloed, confessionalised communities. Central and Eastern Europe provides a productive context in which to study the process of this fracturing of medieval Christianity. We see it in Poland in the first half of the 16th century with King Sigismund I and his unwillingness to prosecute Lutherans, and in Irenic intellectual circles at the Vienna court into the late 16th century. And in Bohemia, we can see it still here in the early 17th century around this iconoclastic event and the reactions to it. This was an incredible event of the last holding on to a universal wish of an undivided Christendom. It gave support to those that argued, like Wilhelm Slavata, that embracing Protestantism brought bitter conflicts to Bohemia. A dialogue in a pamphlet from 1620 between a Eutrochist, a Catholic and a Lutheran reflected the concerns that further attacks were due from English Calvinist forces and they suggested that it would be better for you and me to follow the Jesuits than the Reformed for they have never thrown such a big rock in our garden as the Calvinists have just done. While Slavata nailed his colours to a rosy-tinted view of Catholicism that was rooted in unity, ubiquity and antiquity, many of Prague's burghers went about their daily lives navigating multiple different devotional practices as a glimpse into Dorota's house has shown. Second, how does this case keep, uh, help us think about navigating early modern Catholic visual culture? Thinking about understanding Catholicism and Catholic visual culture in history is sharply affected by geographical context. We're familiar with the more straightforward story of a triumphant Catholicism in Italy or Spain, or even with the martyred forms that we see in England, with objects hidden, destroyed, or brought back later in their lives. 
like indeed the ones at Ushaw, where we can see um, the medieval altar stone, which is cut down to make a recusant portable altar stone, and uh, Portuguese Goa ivory high altar crucifix from the chapel of the English College in Lisbon. Made in the 18th century and brought back here um, in the 20th century. So each one of these things has layers of, of histories and object lives that we, we trace and, and are more familiar with um, in England for this kind of martyred context of Catholicism. But the story of Catholic objects in lands defined by a militant struggle against Protestantism provides another perspective and another complex history in piecing back together the Catholic visual culture of the period. Objects in such very Catholic places as Bohemia have suffered just as much loss often and destruction as in martyred lands. Those that were saved in situ are rare and often have stories behind them. Those that were made afterwards are particularly extravagant, such as the Baroque forms of Catholicism that trumpet victory and splendor and glory emerging from the wounds of attack. And here we have this uh, Charles Bridge statues, which you might be familiar with um, from the later 17th century. And the Marian Column that was um, erected in 1650 at the end of the Thirty Years' War, uh, nicely in front of the old Eutychrist church, um, very symbolic in marking this as a now Catholic city. And uh, this was destroyed in, the 20th, um, in 1918 and only recently um, re, uh, uh, re-put up. Okay, so St. Vitus became part of this story. And the memory of this Christmas event spurred on a chain reaction that contributed to the greater glorification of God in Catholic forms in the 17th century. Items were repaired and remade. The altarpiece was replaced by a triptych donated by Emperor Ferdinand. And the damaged Jerusalem candelabrum thought to be from Solomon's temple, was restored with a new topping of Bohemia's patron saints. And an incredible tribute to the event in Prague, which we've looked at throughout this lecture, was produced in 1621 to 23 in the form of these gigantic wooden panels that now encircle the choir in St. Vitus Cathedral. Made by Kaspar Bechtele, They depict the carrying away of statues, the breaking of altars, and dismantling of the chairs with axes, hammers, mallets, and saws. And myths sprung up too. A later 17th century Catholic myth related that a Eutychrist blacksmith refused to dismantle the railings around St. Nepomuk's tomb, and that the Saxon Lutheran who attempted it in his place was struck down and consumed by an internal fire. Thirdly, what does this evidence from early 17th century Bohemia tell us about the changing nature of materiality in this period, how these early modern men and women understood the world around them? The continued use of what we might think of as amuletic materials alongside and constituting devotional items indicates the continuing importance of God's world and the power that it held.
The quantities of chalcedony in Dorota's inventory were not just medical supplies, but they were linked to a landscape imbued with historical sacred value and power. While artistic style and theology may have changed over these centuries, two important elements in understanding human relationships with their material surroundings stayed largely the same across confessions. First, the primacy of the senses and ideas about how they worked in interacting with the world and what that meant for devotion. And second, ideas about the divine in natural matter, which were also explored in natural philosophy. So, where are we today? Frederick V was forever more known in Czech history as the Winter King, surviving only until November 1620, when he fled after the defeat of his forces at the Battle of the White Mountain. The misguided attack on St. Vitus and Bohemian heritage was a significant part of his failure. But this has not dampened the tradition of Christmas in Bohemia. On 5th of December, the evening before St. Nicholas Day, which is today, St. Nicholas, Mikolash, an angel who represents good and devil, who represents evil, wander the streets in costumes offering sweets to well-behaved children. What would poor school think? 